Amen. If you'll reach for your Bibles with me for today's scripture reading in preparation of Pastor Bruce's sermon. And turn in your Bible to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 1, as we have been these last few weeks. If you're in need of a pew Bible, please feel free to use one located in front of you. You can find today's scripture reading on page 1199. Excuse me. We're starting in verse 13 of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, reading through verse 18. Follow along as I read. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, we come. Lord, we have come that we may taste and see that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, Lord, that you are wonderful. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, no matter where we are in life, Lord, we want to hear from you. Be with Pastor Bruce. Use him as your vessel. We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that we have, the freedom to come here to worship you. May we never take that for granted. Thank you most of all for the freedom that we have in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. We are continuing on through the book of James in our study that we began several weeks ago. And so if you are new here, that is what we are doing here in the summer, is we are studying the epistle or the letter, the book of James. And so far we have learned here in the first chapter James is showing us, he's teaching us that life is hard because life is full of trials. The kind of trials that James talks about here in chapter 1, the the various kinds of trials that he refers to that, that God uses for our good and for his glory. But that does not mean that trials are easy. In fact, sometimes the trials are life are hard, those trials are difficult, and some of those trials are even painful. Now, you might be here this morning, and life is going great for you. Life is good for you at the moment. Right now, uh, you are problem-free. You are trial-free, if we could say it that way. But there are some of you here this morning that you are facing the trials of life. And those trials are difficult and hard and painful. Those trials might have to do with some of your family members, your kids, maybe your parents. Maybe those trials have to do with finances. Maybe it has to do with your job. Maybe it has to do with other relationships. Maybe it has to do with your health. Whatever the case may be, you are facing the kind of trials that James has talked about through this first chapter. In fact, you may feel like Job in the Old Testament where he lost everything. He lost his material possessions, he lost his family, 
He was going through the trials of life. And perhaps you're here and you feel like David where, where he is running for his life. There has been betrayal by his own family member. His own son Absalom is now rising up against him in an insurrection. He has surrounded himself with others to overtake David's throne, and now David is running for his life. He is in a trial of sorts. Perhaps you feel like the Apostle Paul, where where Paul has these thorns in the flesh, these thorns that are causing him difficulty and pain, so much so that he has asked God, he's pleaded with God to remove those from him, and God told him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so wherever you may be here this morning, You are experiencing the kind of trials that James has talked about in the trials we have seen through this first chapter. The book of James, this is why we're going through the book of James. One reason why I love this book, it is about living out real faith in real life. And so here is a a question, a real life question in relation to the trials. And that is, what do you hold on to when the trials of life Those trials that are difficult, those trials that are hard and even painful, what do you hold on to when those trials cause you to question the very goodness of God? I want to encourage you here this morning to hold on to what James writes here in chapter 1, specifically in verses 17 through 18. Hold on to this Truth here, listen to it again, where James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Now, the human tendency on behalf of everyone here this morning is to think that when the trials of life are hard and difficult and painful, that God is not good. And perhaps you've already had such thoughts about God in the past, maybe even now, and if you haven't in the past or now, I guarantee you, you will be tempted with those thoughts in the future when you face your own trials. Let's be honest, we begin to to question God's goodness when when life is hard and when those trials are, are bitter, when they are long and they never seem to end. And when facing such trials, we can begin to doubt God's love for us. We begin to doubt that, that God even has a purpose for us in those trials. And we begin to doubt if God is even there for us. Does he care for me? Does he even know what I'm going through? We learned last Sunday that the trials around us can prompt all sorts of temptations within us. And in one of those temptations now that James is drawing out for us here is to begin to doubt God's goodness, to begin to question the goodness of God. And so James immediately addresses that temptation when he says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And so while we have this real-life question, James is giving us a real-faith warning here when he tells us and he pleads with us, don't be deceived about the goodness of God. Why? Because God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. 
and that includes the trials of life. At such times, we must remember that God is good, so very good, that he wants that which is good for you, so keep trusting him in the trials of life. But let's be honest, it is so, so easy to forget how good God is in the trials of life. It is easy to lose sight of the goodness of God when the trials are long and they are hard. It is easy to doubt God's goodness. It is easy to question that goodness. It is easy to be misled from this truth that James talks about here and to begin to hold wrong misconceptions about God. In fact, we are especially vulnerable to deception in the trials of life. And so now, out of loving concern for for our spiritual well-being, James warns us here, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. In fact, it literally means stop being deceived. In other words, James is, is telling us that there have been already, there are some believers, James readers there, that he's writing to at that day and age, already some of that audience, those readers were already being deceived and we're doubting the goodness of God, and James is telling them, stop it. Stop being deceived. And he warns them. And he wants them to stop being deceived so they will not give up in the trials of life, so they will not walk out on their faith in God. In fact, one of Satan's tricks is to convince us that somehow our Heavenly Father is holding out on us that he does not really love us. He doesn't care for us. You might remember in the, in the Garden of Eden, when Satan approached Eve, he suggested that if, if God was truly good, he would let you, Eve, eat of all the trees in the Garden of Eden. And he said to the woman in Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? You see, Satan wanted Eve to, to doubt God's goodness there to question God's character and his purposes for Eve's life in the garden, to think that somehow God was holding out on her and did not really love her. And sure enough, we know from the rest of the scriptures there that she believed Satan's lie. She ate the forbidden fruit. And then when God held her accountable, when God confronted Eve, we're told in Genesis 3.13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, listen to it, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thousands of years later, listen, Satan is still trying to convince us, deceive us, to question God's goodness in our lives. And so James now pleads with us as this pastor, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And notice how James issues this warning, and he does so with love. Did you notice that when he calls them, my beloved brothers? Now, you might remember, if you go back earlier in chapter 1 and verse 2, James calls his readers, quote, brothers, and we saw that that is a gender-neutral term that acknowledges his readers as both brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But here in verse 16, he calls them my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that is a term of affection indicating that James deeply cares about these believers in Christ. But even more importantly, what James is doing with that term, 
he is reminding his readers, and by application, he's reminding us here this morning that they are greatly loved by God the Father. They are saved. They are redeemed. They are members of God's eternal family. And so James says, remember how much God loves you. And yet, as beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, they were susceptible. They were vulnerable to deception about the goodness of God, and so are we. Pastor and author H.B. Charles says, the pearl of the unredeemed sinner is unbelief, but the pearl of the redeemed sinner is misbelief. In other words, we hold wrong views about God. We don't believe correctly about God as revealed in his word. We have misbelief. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, A Grief Observed, and it's his testimony. He says, the thing I feared is not that I'll stop believing in God, but that I might begin to believing dreadful things about God. Not that I'll say there is no God, but that I will say, so that's what God is really like? He's not a good God in my life. Where is he? Where is the goodness of God? That's what C.S. Lewis is alluding to. And that can happen to any of us. And so James says, don't be deceived about God. Because as A.W. Tozier said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so in this context here, what you think about God is crucial to remaining steadfast in the trials of life. And it's only by remaining steadfast that we actually see God's good purposes accomplished in our lives. So let's unpack this a little bit. It's two simple points out of these two verses, or verses 17 and 18, the first of which, but both of these verses, both the points hang on the preceding verse, verse 16, which is the warning, don't be deceived. And so the first point here that we see is, don't be deceived. Why? Because God is the source of every good and perfect gift in your life. Notice again what he writes in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So look at your life right now. What good is in it? Are you alive here this morning? I know some of you walked in and you feel like you were the walking dead. I'm not sure if I'm quite alive. Trust me, you're alive. You're here this morning. And if you're here this morning and you're alive, God is good. God has given you another day of breath. God is good to you. You have salvation in Jesus Christ here this morning. God is good to you. God is graciously and abundantly good to you in his salvation in Jesus Christ. He is so good, he opened your eyes to see your need for Jesus Christ, to see your sinfulness so that you would cry out for Jesus as your Savior and Lord. God is good to you. Do you have a church family that you can call home? God is good to you. Do you have food to eat? Most of us have more than enough food in the fridge. God is good. Do you have your health? I know some of you, your health is in decline, but you're still alive. Most of us here still have good health. God is good to you. Do you have children? Because there are some who cannot have children. 
And so you are here this morning. You have children. God has been good to you. Do you have a job? God is good. Do you have a car? God is good. Do you have a mind that still functions? God is good. Do you have freedom? After all, that's what we're celebrating this weekend. We're celebrating our freedom as a country, and we still have our freedoms. Maybe not as much as we wish we had, but we have it nonetheless. God is good. In fact, every good thing that you have in your life, Jane says, it comes from God himself. It does not come from below. It does not come from within you. It does not come from without you or around you. James says, they come from the one who is above. They come from God. And James says, don't be deceived about that. God is the source of every good gift in our lives. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. There is no more important truth to embrace, to hold on to when you are facing a trial in life. Because every time that I think that God's plans and God's purposes in that trial are not good, the reality is I'm being deceived. One pastor and author puts it this way. Every moral decision we make hinges on this question. Do I believe God is good in all he commands Or do I believe I can come up with a plan that is better? So every time I tell myself that God's plans through this trial that I'm facing right now is not good and that I have a better plan than you, God, I am doing the exact same thing Eve did in the Garden of Eden. I am buying the lie that God is not good. But listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8.32. He says, he, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God loves us enough to send his own son to die for us in our place, why would his plans for you, even in that trial that is hard and long and painful, not be for your good as well. I just, I wonder how many of us here this morning are afraid. Fear has gripped us to the point where we're, we're afraid to remain steadfast in the trials of life because somehow we have doubted God's love and we think God's plans in that trial is not for my good. Don't be deceived. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And then what James does, he actually highlights for us, he emphasizes three traits about the goodness of God. First of all, we learn here that God is intrinsically good. Or we might even say God is inherently good. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. In other words, God's act of giving is good, and all his gifts are perfect because God is inherently and totally good. The implied truth is that nothing evil can possibly come from our God. In fact, James even says that God's gifts are are both good and perfect, which are somewhat synonymous terms. This word perfect is actually one of 
James' favorite words to use throughout this letter. And as we've already seen earlier in chapter 1 here, this word perfect, it refers to spiritual maturity. James used it back in verse 4 where he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what James is doing here, catch this, he's actually tying verse 17 with verses 2 through 4 with the idea that our trials are one of God's, get this, perfect gifts in our lives, even though we might not think so. Because when we remain steadfast in those trials, God is using them for our good. That is to produce spiritual maturity in us, what James calls perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So God is intrinsically good. He's inherently good. Number two, God is sovereignly good. James says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And then he states the sovereign process by which we receive these good gifts when he says, coming down from the Father of lights. Coming down. That describes for us the continual, never-ending flow of God's goodness to his children. In other words, think of it this way. God's goodness is raining down on you. That's the idea. Every good gift is from God above, who just pours them down in a constant stream that never ceases to flow. And we're reminded of this in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, where it says the steadfast love of the Lord never what? Ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. And so when it comes to remaining steadfast in the trials of life, James is saying to us, don't look around you. Don't look within you. You look up. Why? Because he doesn't want you to judge God by what you see around you. He wants you to look up and remind yourself That God is sovereignly good in your life. And then James says that every good gift comes down from this, he uses this unique phrase, the father of lights. It almost sounds like James is talking about God is somehow lighting a Christmas tree or something. I don't know. My mind goes in weird places when I read some of the stuff. And, uh, but that's not the idea there. To say that God is the father of lights, he, he's referring to the fact that God is one who reigns over these heavenly bodies, what we would call the the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, and he reigns over them, get this, with sovereign authority. So to say that God is the father of lights is to say that God sovereignly created these heavenly lights. Psalm 19.1 reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so God is the creator. He is the one who made the stars. He is the one who fixed them in place and sustains our universe. He charts their course. He is the, the cosmic God who reigns over every corner of his universe. And it is this sovereign creator, what James calls the, the father of lights, who loves us, he knows us, and he gives us good gifts. So we see that God is intrinsically good. We see he is sovereignly good. And then number three, God is unchangeably good. James emphasizes and declares in the last part of verse 17 when he says, with whom, the speaking of God there, there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, what James is saying here is that God made the heavenly bodies. 
He made the suns, the stars, the moons, these planets that orbit in our universe, but God is unlike them in a very important way. And that is God does not change. God's goodness is constant and consistently good. You see, like the heavenly bodies, our planet is what? It's constantly moving. In fact, the whole universe is the swirl of motion. And so as a result, Jane now identifies as an illustration for us that he highlights shadows for us. And shadows are never still, as you know. Shadows are constantly shifting. They're either growing longer or they're growing shorter. And all this motion is a reflection of God's creative power, but he himself is not like them. In other words, there is no variation in God. To use a theological term, God is immutable. That is, our God never changes for the worse. He never changes for the better. Why? Because he is already perfectly and ultimately wonderfully good in every way, and you cannot get any better than our God. If you could change, if God could change for the better, that would mean he was not ultimately good in the first place. But he is. Why? Because God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. This also means that the goodness of God, get this, it cannot be blocked by anything that does change. In fact, this phrase, shadow, due to change, asserts that nothing that does change can block, can hinder, can obscure, or even eclipse the goodness of God. In other words, what James is saying here, this is what he wants you to grab hold of, embrace this truth in your life. Life may be hard, but God is still good. The trials of life do not cancel out the goodness of God. Why? Because God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Now, if we judge God by the circumstances that we face in the trials of life, very few of us here this morning would call God good. And the reason is because we cannot see the end of what he is doing in our lives through that trial he's taking us through. And so the question remains, do we trust that God is the source of every good thing in our lives? Do we believe that God's purposes for us are always good, even when we cannot figure out how his purposes will come together in our lives? And again, I'm with you. I freely admit it is not easy to look at the trials of life and say God is good and his purpose for me is good. That's why one of the greatest acts of faith in the trials of life is to refuse to be deceived. In other words, the greatest act of faith that you can embark on in a trial life is to embrace this truth that God is good all the time and all the time God is good and not be deceived by that, to not be misled, 
to not doubt the goodness of God, to not question the goodness of God in your life, to not look at your circumstances and allow that to skew your view of God. Don't be deceived, James says. God is good, and he rains his goodness down on us in various ways. Number two, James says, don't be deceived because God is the one who brings us forth to new life. Now, to further drive home the point of God's goodness, James tells us here that God alone is behind the greatest gift that we can ever receive in our life. You see, some of you think your greatest gift is, well, at Christmas time, when your spouse gave you whatever and your kids gave you that or your parents gave you whatever. You're like, oh, man, that was such a great gift. Thank you. That's so awesome. But that's not the greatest gift. James is highlighting for us the greatest gift ever here, and that is our new life in Jesus Christ. James has already shown us something about the cycle of birth. That is the grim birth of sin and death in verse 15. And the only answer to that cycle is a new birth. And it's this new cycle that now defines those who have come to Christ in saving faith. And so look what James writes in verse 18. He says, of his own will, that is God's will, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. Why? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That phrase, listen, mark that phrase, he brought us forth. That phrase is awesome because what it means, James is describing for us how this new birth came about in our lives, how new life in Christ came about. It's what Jesus called in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We sometimes use the theological word to describe it as regeneration, which is simply the sovereign and gracious act by which God gives us new life to those who are dead in their sins. This is what God has done for us. Notice it. He brought you forth to what? To new life. In fact, this brought forth That is the exact same verb that Jane used in verse 15 when he said, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so understand something here. James is contrasting, comparing something for us here. He is highlighting, he's saying, listen, sin brings forth death. We saw that last Sunday. But now he is emphasizing that God brings us forth to New life, and it happens through this new birth. That's how incredible God's goodness is. And this happens once and for all. That is, you are not born again, again, and again, and again, and again. God has brought us forth to new life once and for all. And now James highlights for us three facts about this new birth, where he says this new birth takes place, first of all, by God's will. It happens by God's will. James says, of his own will, he brought us forth. In other words, new life in Christ has been given to us by God the Father. It comes to us as a gracious gift from God. It's not something that you and I can somehow earn. God chose 
to give us new life. So understand something here from a biblical perspective about your salvation. If you here this morning, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, it is all because of God's goodness and grace. It is all because of God Almighty and His intervention in your life. God chose to love you first. He chose to soften your heart so that you could see the truth of yourself as a sinner and see the truth of Jesus Christ as your Savior and to trust Him for salvation. Jesus says to His disciples in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, I chose you. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5, he says, but God being rich in mercy, in other words, God being good because of the great love with which he had loved us, even, listen to Paul's words here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace, you have been saved. So Paul is telling us that being dead in our trespasses and sin, we, we, we don't have the will, we don't have the ability to choose God. Listen, a sinner cannot choose God any more than a dead man can choose to walk. And so God chooses us, and in his goodness, in his grace, God brought us forth by his will, and now, in response, we respond in saving faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a part for us to play. We need to respond in faith. We put our faith and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, but God initiates that in us. It's all because of God. That is how great he is. That is how good he is in your life. This new birth, James says, also takes place not just by the will of God, but it takes place through the word of God. According to verse 18, the means by which God gives us new life is by, and James uses this phrase that's unique to him, he says, by the word of truth. We could, we could summarize that down, boil it down. He's referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, again, he's comparing and contrasting what we've already learned in verses 14 and 15 here, where we saw that the birth of sin, the birth of death, comes as a result of what? Us giving in to our sinful desires. Whereas here in verse 18, the new birth takes place by coming under, in other words, submitting ourselves under the power and authority and the supremacy of God's word. Ephesians 1.18 tells us, In him you also, when you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so understand something so powerful is the word of God that it can penetrate our hearts, it can grip us, and it can make us into new people in Jesus Christ. So what we see here is that God saves sinners who who first hear and then believe the word of truth. And this is consistent with what Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 17, where he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God, he says. So God brings us forth to new life, how? Through the Word of truth. The power of the Gospel. And this affirms for us the importance of God's Word, the priority of God's Word in the life and work of the church of God. Folks, listen to me. Without the preaching here every Sunday, without the teaching of God's Word on a weekly basis, without you sharing the Word of God, there is no new life in Jesus Christ. It only comes through the power of God's Word. That's why us here at LifeBridge, that's why we are committed to the authority and the supremacy and the priority of the Word of God. It's not what I say. It is what the Bible says. That's why we want you to have your Bibles with you. That's why we want you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one at the back, take one of the pew Bibles, open up God's Word, whether it's a paper version, a digital version, and follow along. For it is the power of God's word that changes lives. It is not what I say. And that's what James is emphasizing here. It is the word. It happens by the will of God, but it comes through the power of God's word that brings forth new life through a new birth, what Jesus calls being born again. And then all of that happens for God's glory. The new birth takes place for the glory of of God. James says that the effect of this new birth is that we become like first fruits of God's creation. Look at it. It's the last phrase in verse 18 where James says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, that may not mean a lot to us here, urbanites who live in the city. We're not farmers. So let me explain it a little bit. The first fruits are the initial batch of a farmer's crop. And those first fruits, let me tell you, you get excited about those first fruits as a farmer. Because those first fruits are a preview of things to come. They prove, in other words, they're like a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is now on its way. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the harvest would come, God's people were to give the, quote, first fruits to God. You say, why would they do that? Why would God require that? Well, the purpose of that was to acknowledge something. First, to acknowledge that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. And the example of that gift is the harvest that came, because you were dependent upon that harvest. It's also to express confidence in God's future provision. And so James now takes this language to emphasize the fact that while salvation, it is for us, it is not about us. God saves us for his glory, not our glory. And we, we here as believers in Christ, James says we are the first fruits of God's glorious plan of redemption. In other words, our new life in Christ is just the beginning of what God is up to a plan that incorporates, get this, all of creation. Now, you you need to get excited about that. You're a little dead here, but let me explain. Hopefully, you'll get excited about that because I'm telling you, God is so good in what he's saying here with that. In other words, what God has done 
in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only now a preview of the day to come when he will make all things new in all creation. And the work God has done in our new birth will one day lead to a new heaven and a new earth where there will be, get this, no more trials in this life. No more temptations to battle with. And in the meantime, James is saying to us here, take heart. Don't be deceived. Take heart. God has saved us from our sins. And if God has saved us from our sins, listen, we here as his children, we can be confident that he will see us through these trials in this life that are so long and hard and bring heartache and pain and difficulty. He will see you through as you plug through and remain steadfast. So again, James is encouraging us here. He's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Listen, God is the source of everything good in your life, and that includes the trials that he wants to bring about good in your life. And God is the one who brings us forth to the greatest gift of all. That is this new birth, new life in Jesus Christ. And this new life in Christ, let me tell you, it is just the beginning of God's glorious plan to make all things new in all creation. So remain steadfast in the here and now. In these trials, knowing, knowing and embracing that God is good. Again, as we already said, if we, if we judge God by the circumstances that we face in the trials of life, very few of us will call God good. Because we cannot see everything that God is doing in our lives. We cannot see the end of what he is doing in our lives. We have to believe it is for our good by faith. And we base it in the character of God. He's a good and gracious God. And so it is not easy, I freely admit, even for myself, it is not easy to look at the trials of life and say, yeah, God is good. His purposes for me are good. While I'm going through a heartache with my children, while my health is coming to an end, while the bills are piling up, while I have a lost job, while I'm going through this relational dysfunction in my family, or this trial comes in. It is not easy. And that's why, again, one of the greatest acts of faith in the trials of life is to simply remember the goodness of God. Listen, God is good all the time. Even, listen to me, even when I cannot feel it, he is good all the time, even when I cannot see it. And because God is good all the time, he is worthy of our trust all the time, including the trials of life. As we close here, I want to share just a brief story about Joseph Bailey. And I know probably none of you know who Joseph Bailey is. Joseph Bailey was a Christian author and publishing executive before he passed away many years ago in 1986. Joseph Bailey and his wife, Mary Lou, had seven beautiful children. 
But three of those children died at very young ages. And so Joseph was intimately acquainted with the pain of death. He was all too familiar with what he once called his enemy's grim violence. But he was even more intimately acquainted with the one who conquered that enemy forever. Joe knew that peace with death does not come from understanding everything that happens to us, but in knowing the God who is in control of everything, which he writes about in a very short book called The View from the Hearse. He also wrote a column in a magazine called Eternity, Eternity Magazine. And he wrote, this, he wrote a column in that magazine for well over 20 years. In his last and final column, he writes, and I quote, since I've shared the severity of God with my readers, he's now referring to the death of his three kids. I want to share with you in this final column the goodness of God. And then he recounted God's grace in the lives of his four living children. And what is especially significant are his final words, and again I quote, Mary Lou and I are aware that all this represents the grace of God, but also that for ourselves and our children, the road hasn't ended. Yet we know that both by his severity and by his goodness, God has shown consistent faithfulness. God is good. He is worthy of all trust and glory. Amen. So remembering the goodness of God, that is the key to remaining steadfast in the trials of life. James warns us, don't be deceived. Don't buy the lie that God is not good. God is the source of everything good in your life. God is the one who has given you the ultimate gift of new life in Christ. And since God is good all the time, let us embrace the testimony here of Joseph Bailey. God is worthy of our trust all the time because God is good all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness in the trials of life. We acknowledge that you are truly good all the time, even when we can't feel it or we don't see it. Help us not to be deceived and to doubt your goodness. And instead, help us to simply believe that you are good and to trust you with our lives. Bless us as we go forth from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite Zach and the praise team to come on up. We're going, to, we're going to stand and sing one last time here. I want to leave you with this verse. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. May you know the Lord in his goodness.